If you're visiting with us for the first time, we are going through a series on the life of Peter. And we've gone through the Gospels, and we've dealt with Peter in the Gospels. We dealt with a man in the Gospels that had his problems, had his flaws, had his weak points. A man who talked too much. A man has put his foot in his mouth, which we all do. A man that I could not hold up to you as an example on, on every occasion. Occasionally, we got glimpses of the Peter that was to come, but we didn't see a lot of that in the gospel. But praise God, now we're in Acts, and we're seeing a very different man. And it all changed after he denied Jesus, which is, in my opinion, one of the greatest sins in the New Testament. After he denied Jesus, Jesus con confronted him, he repented, and now he's not the same. We're dealing with a different man now. So we're going to Acts chapter 4. We're picking up. Peter and John have just healed a handicapped man who was handicapped from life. And now they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin to account for that. The Sanhedrin does not appreciate what they did. So I've given you this thought as we open this morning. Is it ever legitimate to disobey the government. Is it ever okay to disobey the government? Well, we're going to start to answer that question today. We're not going to give you the complete answer, but as we move through the life of Peter, dealing with him in the book of Acts, we're going to start to fill in some of the pieces to this puzzle. So let's start with verse 13 as they're standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, as they, the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So what do we notice? We notice confidence, boldness, daring. So Peter's boldness is standing out to the religious leaders of the day. Now we're going to see this word a lot in the book of Acts, boldness. Now here it's talking about boldness of speech. One man put it this way, to speak forthrightly without fear of consequences. To speak forthrightly without fear of consequences. And that's what Peter did. These men are acting like Jesus. Now notice how Luke records it. They were uneducated, which means the authorities of the day are looking down on Peter and John. They don't appreciate them. They're shocked that Peter and John can talk about subjects that are usually beyond the training and the education that they have. They don't have a theological education. They're looking down thinking, Peter and John, these guys are just amateurs. We're the professionals over here. These guys are amateurs. They're unqualified. Yet, they're doing a good job. And that's what's shocking the... Sanhedrin. They have no professional credentials, no qualifications, but yet J. Adams put it this way, those who walk with Jesus become like him. Those who walk with Jesus become like him. Now that's Christ's philosophy of education. Education in our day, you walk into a classroom, you sit down, you listen to a teacher, there's a test. That's not what they did back then. Jesus picked men to live with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. And the more they were around him, the more they became like him. 
So a trained student will become like his teacher. He will be like him. So Jesus picked these 12 men so that they would become like him. So now the Sanhedrin sees Jesus in Peter and John. Notice what other words he used here. They're untrained, meaning what Peter is doing doesn't line up with his background as a fisherman. Peter's never been a spokesman for a group before, yet that's exactly what he's doing here. Now notice that Luke does not record his words, but he indicates that John is speaking as well. And I think John would speak up. There's no reason to think that he wouldn't. But the book is focused on Peter, so we're getting more of Peter than we are of John. But I think John is talking as well. I believe that John addressed the court. So it isn't common for this great body of men, now think about this, to be accused of murder and opposing God. That's their training. That's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be doing just the opposite, but these amateurs are accusing them of murder. And they're amazed, which means they're shocked, they're surprised, they're astonished, but they recognize that the men have been with Jesus. Now, folks, what a compliment. The enemies have identified them with Jesus. One thing we learn from that is that God can use anyone. Their lives call attention to Jesus. Listen to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as I read verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And you better believe that we become who we are around. We can't help it. Whoever we are around is going to influence us. And if you're a mother or father or a grandparent or a great-grandparent, you better be very concerned and better, very careful about who your children and grandchildren are hanging around with because they are going to influence them. It just happens. We become like the people that we are around. So we all imitate others. Now, sometimes we don't realize how we're changing to be like the people that we're around, but it's a biblical practice. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 11, when I think about this, Paul says this. Could you say this? Paul writes, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Wow. Could you say that? I don't think I could say that. Now, I hope that you could imitate me in a lot of ways in a lot of areas, and I think that's the hope of all of your elders and all of your deacons. But such a bold statement for Paul to say that. But let's admit also that we learn a lot by imitating others. Now, here's the application. Are you ready for others to imitate you? Think about that. It's not that. Let that soak in a little bit. Are you ready for others to imitate you? Or should they? What an example for us. So the men of the Sanhedrin are offended 
because they're being addressed by untrained men, Peter and John should know better than to talk to the men this way. So in many ways, Peter and John are presenting an ultimatum to them, surrender to Jesus Christ, or there'll be a war. Now, not on their part, but the Sanhedrin is going to declare war on the cause of Christ before we're through. All right, so as we move into verse 14, the leaders have a problem. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. So they have no answer for the facts. The facts are the facts. The man is standing there healed. This guy's cured. He's healed. So the miracle has given the Sanhedrin a problem. He's standing there with Peter and John. Did he say anything? We don't know. We don't have it recorded if he did. But they can't deny the miracle. He's standing there. One writer put it this way. The unanswered defense of Christianity is the changed believer. The unanswered defense of Christianity is the changed believer. The people who are around you and know you well, who know you from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it may be, do they see the change in you? Do they, has there a change taking place between now and 10 years ago or when you were not a believer? Excuse me, I think I'm, I'm struggling with, I may be having to sneeze. I've never had to do this standing up here before. There's always a first for everything. We'll see if that happens or not. But is there enough of a change in your life that the friends around you would notice that? Will the Sanhedrin dare say, no more miracles, stop all of this healing stuff. Will they dare say that? They can't explain how uneducated men can do such a thing. Peter and John are ordinary fishermen, but they're disciples of Jesus. But Jesus is dead. So their reaction here is almost funny. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. All right, let's go to 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. So they send them out so they can talk. Now notice, they're not sending them out to determine the truth. They don't want to know what the truth is. They don't care about the truth. They're conferring, so they're discussing with each other. Here's the question. What in the world are we going to do with these guys? Now there may be as many as 10,000 people in the city of Jerusalem that have been converted and are following Peter and John. There's about 50 to 60,000 people in Jerusalem. 10,000 of them are already following Peter and John. And this has happened almost overnight. So a new church has been planted just like that. So they're thinking, how are we going to hold on to our jobs? How are we going to hold on to our power? How are we going to continue to influence and control the people? Are they moved by Peter's speech? No way. They're thinking, we got to do something here. Now, here's an interesting question. How does Luke know what happened behind closed doors? How does he know that? Well, it may be that someone in the room told him. Now, who could that be? It may be Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 and He didn't want anybody to see that he was there talking to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you're a teacher of the people of Israel and you don't know these things? Or maybe it's Joseph of Arimathea. But I doubt it. 
Because the moment Joseph gave his tomb to Jesus and identified with the dead body of Jesus, Joseph was a politician. The moment he did that, his career was over. He was done. I don't know what he did for the rest of his life, but he was not a politician. Now, was there a term limit so he was able to serve out a certain amount of time? I don't know. Was there a man named, a young man, a student there named Saul, who later became Paul? Did he tell Luke? I could picture Luke and Paul sitting around a campfire. They're talking about it. And Luke asks, what happened? I wonder what happened in that meeting. And I could hear Paul saying, I could tell you exactly what happened because I was there. Now let's, get, let's just keep thinking for just a moment. Jesus, could, Jesus himself could have healed this handicapped man, and he did not do it. He walked right by the man. Why? Well, we believe in the sovereignty of God. It wasn't God's time. If Jesus had healed him, then Peter and John would have missed this tremendous opportunity for the cause of Christ with 10,000 people now converted. So Jesus walked right by that handicapped man for years. We learn a lot about God's providence here. Let's go on to verse 16. Now they're behind closed doors. What are we, what are we saying? What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So the Sanhedrin is now experiencing and living out their worst nightmare. And because of this, the gospel is about to become illegal in Jerusalem. Now, isn't it interesting, talking about the providence of God and why Jesus walked right by this man, isn't it interesting that we happen to live in a day when the gospel is under more attack in this country than it's ever been in my lifetime, and the, the world seems to be targeting us, and we just happen to be studying the book of Acts. We started with Peter and the Gospels, now we're moving into Acts, and one of the major themes of this book is persecution. Isn't that interesting? So they're asking, what shall we do with these men? There's a miracle. We, we, can't, let all, we can't let miracles like this go on. They will not believe it. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is their hard will. Now, they take no action to try to prove the claim whatsoever, none. They take no action to try and prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they don't want it to be true. The problem isn't the facts. Now, when you debate with people the cause of Christ, they don't want to hear the facts. I remember that great debate between Bonson and I forget the gentleman that he debated with. Neil, do you remember? You listened to that. I don't remember who he debated with. He was a scholar and an atheist. You can, you can watch it on, online. Bonson's on one podium. He's at one stand over here. The atheist scholars at this stand over here, they're going at it. And the atheist said, I'll tell you what, if, if this stand, this music stand that I'm, I'm behind, if that stand will rise up off the ground, 
I believe that Jesus Christ is God and rose from the dead. Now, what would you say? How would you answer that? Bonson didn't hesitate. He said, no, you won't. He said, you'll spend the rest of your life looking for a normal cause or normal reason of why it happened. Someone opened the door. The wind came in. It blew the stand, caused it. He said, you won't believe just because of that. And that's right. He's exact, And that's how we have to deal with our unbelievers on many occasions. They will not believe it. They don't want the facts. They don't want it to be true. One man put it this way. Their lack of action is proof of the resurrection. All right, verse 17, we have their decision. Let's look at it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. We don't want it to spread, so let's warn them. They threaten them. Now, their threats would have worked back in the Gospels with many, on many occasions, but it didn't work here. Why? You're seeing a different Peter. You're dealing with a different man. The Sanhedrin wants to stop the truth. Now notice, do not teach again in this name. They can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. All right, so what are we going to do about this? What are they going to do? Verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus. They aren't looking for the truth. They want anything but the truth. We're dealing with hard hearts. If you know, I, one of the things I've said over and over again is that we, we, we need to be teachable. We're dealing with men, supposedly trained professionals in the Scripture, who are unteachable. Even a miracle can't change their hard heart. Do they actually think they can stop the gospel? Now, this is a very important crossroads for this tiny New Testament church because our church history would be very, very different if Peter and John had obeyed. Because everything now hangs on their willingness to obey God at any cost. Now, the center of the attack isn't the healed man. The center of the attack is Jesus. He's the center. These guys are acting like a bunch of bullies. Do not teach or preach in the name of Jesus. They're thinking, we've got to stop this right now. Now, what we have in verse 19 is the first act of civil disobedience in the New Testament. First act. Let's look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than God, you be the judge, 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So how do you handle a government that wants to shut down the gospel and the cause of Jesus Christ? Peter refuses to be intimidated by them. Now here, praise God, I can say to you, here, we need to follow Peter's example. A lot of times in the Gospels, don't do that. But now we can follow his example. Is it right to do it? 
not is it popular, not is it safe, is it based on God's Word. Now, Peter is obeying chapter 1, verse 8. Now, when we started the book of Acts, I gave you the theme verse. It's chapter 1, verse 8. I ask you to mark that in your Bible so you'll always know. Let me go back and read that now because this is what Peter is doing. Chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. Peter is obeying chapter 1, verse 8, at all costs. Now, Peter isn't standing alone here. He might be thinking, oh my goodness, no one else in the history of the church has ever gone through anything like this. I'm the only one. But that's not true. Think about the midwives. Back in Egypt, they said, you cannot deliver any more of their babies, of the Hebrew babies. They disobeyed. Think about Moses' parents. The children cannot live and survive. They didn't listen. Think about Daniel, how he stood. On and on we can go. But all of them and Peter have one thing in common. They're all respectful and they're courteous. Now, folks, that's hard to do. When you're being attacked, it's hard to be respectful and courteous. But that's what they're doing. That's what the Holy Spirit will give you. Now, Peter and John, they could have remained quiet when they were there. They could have stayed quiet and then left and, and just keep on preaching. But that's not what they did. They openly rejected the Sanhedrin. Now, these words have helped many persecuted believers over the years, and I hope they, they help you and they help me. Because I don't want to be negative. But the way this country is going, we may have our day. These words will help you and help me. The entire book of Acts that we're going through is going to help us in this area. Think about Martin Luther. It's the same scene. Move forward 1,500 years. Now we have Martin Luther standing in a very similar spot. He's alone. He's surrounded by power and authority and degrees and robes and people that can kill him. And they ask him to deny it, and he will not do it. Same situation. And we need to be believers who today will stand in a very similar way, in a very similar spot, if that ever happens. And some of those pressures are increasing today. Now, the Bible holds government up as an authority, and it holds government up that we should respect government. Go and read Romans chapter 13, verse 1. But when government goes too far and it does something that is morally wrong or spiritually wrong, we have to draw the line as a believer. All right, let's go on to verse 20. This is Peter's continuing. We just looked at it. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So now the apostles must choose between obeying God or people, authority, government. And they're very clear. We refuse to obey. We appeal to a higher court. We will continue to preach Jesus Christ. Now notice, they're not rude. We have two confident men 
who say we cannot keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. Now, that's a good combination. This is true discipleship. We talk about what we've seen. We talk about what we have heard. We've seen changed lives. We've heard God's Word. Both are needed in our witness. All right, verse 21. When that threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So they threatened them. Now, in the Gospels, the threats and intimidations work, but they do not work here. They said, let them go for now. All right, verse 22. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So it looks like Peter and John have won. But folks, the war is on. And the battle and the war on this tiny church has only just started. And what we have is two trains on the same track headed for each other and there's going to be a collision. Now notice, Luke is a doctor. He's a detail man. He tells us the guy is 40 years old. Now that's a lifetime back then. That was a lifespan of someone. So this man is now a senior citizen. Now let's, let's, let's think and be just a little creative for a moment. When Jesus was born, this man was about seven years old. He was handicapped. He couldn't play with the other children as they ran and played with the other kids. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, Jesus was about 12 years old. This guy was about 19 or 20, sitting and probably sitting in his spot outside the temple. No work, no hope. Did the 12-year-old Jesus ever walk up to him and say, Someday you're going to be healed? We don't know. We have no idea. But now he is healed, and all three of them are walking out together encouraged, but a collision is coming. All right, let me give you some application as I wrap this up a little bit. I want to share with you three marks of godly courage that we find in this passage. Three marks of godly courage. How can we imitate Peter and John here? How can we imitate Peter and John? And that's a worthy goal here. They're setting a great example for us. Okay, number one. First mark of godly courage, we see the confidence of Peter and John. The confidence of Peter and John. Now, they aren't rude, but if the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and living inside of me, one mark of that is going to be you're going to be confident, but you're also going to be humble. You show me someone who's confident and not humble, and I'll, give you, I'll show you a problem. You show somebody that's humble and not confident, I'll show you a problem. And I'll give you an example of that as we close. But there, if the Holy Spirit's living in you and living in me, we should be confident and be humble. Peter and John are confident. Their confidence is in the Lord. Number two, second mark of godly courage. Notice the authority of Peter and John. The authority of Peter and John. No formal training, no theological degrees in education like the Sanhedrin has. They're standing on Christ's authority. 
And you can't be blown around when you're standing on Christ's authority. One problem that many of our elected politicians have with Christians today is they can't move us. They want to be able to persuade us to change our position, to go here, do that. When you're standing on God's Word, you're not going to be moved. Now, I'm not getting into politics. I quote politicians, and I have the right to quote politicians. I've said it before. When Hillary Clinton was running for president, I heard her say, somebody said, ask her about the abortion issue in the Christian church, and she said almost a quote, best as I can remember it, the church has to change. The church has to change. She doesn't get it. When you're standing on an authority of God's Word, God's Word doesn't change, which means we can't change. She needs to change. Her hard heart needs to change. Notice the authority of Peter and John. They're standing on Christ's authority. Number three, the third mark of godly courage. I want you to see the effectiveness of Peter and John. The effectiveness of Peter and John. They let the Holy Spirit use them. You can do that, folks. I can do that. They let the Holy Spirit use them. Now, after chapter 3, it's interesting. After chapter 3, there are only three chapters in the entire book of Acts that do not mention persecution. Only three chapters. Listen to what one man said. Persecution may be a necessary part of the Christian life. Persecution may be a necessary part of the Christian life. The word courage is found 12 times in the book of Acts. Peter and John are not avoiding opportunities. They are looking for every opportunity to share the gospel. Peter and John are loyal to Jesus Christ. They choose to obey the Lord even if it means facing the wrath of of the most powerful people of their day. Now I'm going to close with a little story of uh, D.L. Moody. I found this very interesting. The writer said, An incident from the life of D.L. Moody well expresses the attitude that we should have. When he was young, an Irish friend named Henry Varley told him, Moody, the world is yet to see what God will do with a man fully committed to him. Moody was startled by the statement. He kept thinking about it for days. He reasoned, a man. Varley meant any man. Varley didn't say he had to be educated, didn't say he had to be brilliant or anything else. Just a man, just a woman, just a teenager. Then he went on to say, well... By the Holy Spirit in me, I'll be that man. And he goes on to say, that's passion, that's loyalty. And that's exactly right. Now think about it, folks. That could be you, that could be me. Don't have to be educated, don't have to be brilliant. You have to be committed, fully committed. You can do that. I can do that through the Holy Spirit living in you. We can be that. It's a lot to think about. That's a challenge for us. Think about that in the week to come. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us. And we thank you for this great testimony of Peter and John and this healed man and 
Father, we, we can't help but think. We don't know, but we can't help but think. But that healed man went on to be a foundation in this new young church. So I pray that you would challenge us through your spirit in a week to come that we would be committed and become that man or woman committed to you like D.L. Moody was. We thank you for the work that you accomplished through him. Now, Lord, we pray will you accomplish work through us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.